Hi, my name is Chris Werner, and I'm a partner at Frank Partners, FP. More than a month has passed since our dear partner, colleague, and friend, Sakia Zaguro, succumbed to complications from COVID-19 after battling the illness for several weeks. As we are still coping with this immense loss, it turned out that our friends from the Nordic Business Ethics Network still had some old recordings as part of a previous podcast series with Zakia. Knowing Zakia, she would have wanted us to stay level-headed and rational and to continue our mission to empower business leaders through our analysis and advice to enable more informed, ethical and sustainable practices. And what better way could there be to keep up her legacy than to let her speak on ethics and business in her own words? So glad to have you back in Ethics Talk, Sakia. Uh, hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. Uh, the last time uh, we discussed uh, a lot of topics around uh, challenges in emerging markets and how to deal with those types of risks. And this is a topic that I will want to continue to explore with you in this, this uh, podcast. But before we dive into the topic of the day, uh, would you just mind telling the listeners who doesn't know you a few words about yourself and your experience in particular in working working with emerging markets and risk risky projects? Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love being back. Um, well, a little bit of background. I've been involved in risk consulting um, focused on emerging markets for over a decade. Um, uh, I tried to lose count after a while, but mainly looking at due diligence, investigations, uh, strategy, and also understanding how uh, frameworks should look like inside companies. So understanding, you know, the basics of how to set up a risk management program and a structure within companies, um, not only multinationals like the Nordic ones that we, we have a lot of clients in the Nordics, but also um, investment companies, so private equity, etc. And looking at what exactly they should be doing internally that's practical, that's pragmatic, and that's effective in terms of compliance, anti-corruption, anti-bribery, but also, also the topic of today, which is ESG. Yes, uh, thank you for, for making that bridge. Uh, so we are going to dive into the world of ESG, which may be a cryptic, cryptic acronym, but uh, it stands for Environment, Social and Governance. And it's a term that's increasingly used, especially in investment circles, but also by analysts who in are asking companies more about their ESG efforts. And I think coming out from the big scandals that we see in this field, so let's take the Volkswagen scandal on, in the environmental sphere, mm -hmm. we see human rights issues, like more with the social impact and governance issues. I think the, the latest ones, the big corruption, uh, corruption cases that, that we see, have caused investors to understand that there is more to a company than just what's in the balance sheet. That's just, there is more than just the revenue, the top line. So there is a dimension that should be understood. Also, what's interesting in this context is that um, in 
an investment, when you do an investment, it can, of course, either be a shareholder kind of relationship, or, uh, but it can also be in an M&A situation, mm-hmm. like when you're acquiring a company or a private equity fund. And um, here we see that the, the value from ESG is becoming more and more proven because this is where the hidden, hidden pitfalls uh, can be. So could you elaborate that about that a bit, like why we should care uh, about ESG before we will then go into talking about why we need to do this particular due diligence uh, as well? Yes, I think it's I think it's it's something where we can draw parallels between the development of integrity and compliance due diligence and ESG due diligence. So you know we had. Um, you know, many years where integrity due diligence was seen as something very basic. And we've now had a much more mature way of looking at integrity due diligence. And I think it's a similar kind of idea here that we had people not including ESG issues into due diligence and integrity due diligence or reputational risk. And now they're realizing more and more that ESG is critical to it. And it's not only about, um, you know, the big environment, social governance. It's everything included underneath that, which is, you know, labor issues, which is, um, you know, social communal issues, which is um, uh, everyone looking at uh, corruption, but also looking at culture. So it, it really is relevant for companies when they're looking at uh, an M&A situation or for private equity or other investments, looking at um, potential investor targets, where you're looking not only at their anti-corruption and bribery, so your normal ABC, but you're also looking at the whole picture, which is real operational risks and uh, real financial risks that are represented by this this kind of word ESG. And I think much in the same vein, you know, companies and investors are looking at understanding companies from the ground up. So it's not just what is in the books, as you say, but it's also looking at their actual operations, their culture, their ethics, and their policies. And that has an impact on their operations, but it also has an impact on their investment value. So we've seen this in the investment space a lot. So in the financial sector, we've seen, you know, um, big players like BlackRock, for example, making announcements about ESG. Um, we've seen um, others who've started, you know, it's very hot topic, having green bonds, for example. So it's becoming quite trendy. But what we want to kind of emphasize is that this is not a PR exercise. This is really deeply understanding and realistically understanding what it is your potential partner, your potential JV, your potential M&A target in any of those contexts actually believes about how they need to run their company and whether they practice these same principles. But are we talking here about that it is about managing risk in a sense that you do not want to pay too much for a target with these kind of hidden risks and issues that may become your liability? Mm -hmm. Um, Or do you see that there could actually be a premium as well, that if it's a company that's extremely well-averse in these areas, that investors would be able to actually pay or would be willing to pay more? I think there's more demands on companies to show what their ESG track record is. 
And, you know, there are realistic issues with this. For example, I mentioned things like labor. In, in terms of hardcore ESG issues like um, child labor, sourcing materials from the Amazon, I mean, we have all of these things that everyone knows about, but these are real issues. And yes, if people can prove, and more likely people are being asked to prove, what is your policy? How have you implemented that policy? And how are you actively participating in your kind of business ethics and also in terms of your kind of your practice and culture in promoting, you know, positive impact in the environment you're working in, um, positive impact in the community you're working in. And within your entire kind of third party network, actually also impacting those uh, entities to create better governance. So in each of those aspects, you will be measured and that could come at a premium. But on the flip side, if you ignore these things, and we have seen countless examples of this, that you will definitely pay the price for it. Could, One, you, could you give some examples of where you've seen that it's actually become very expensive? I, I'll give you an example of... Um, a children's product in, in, uh, that was actually manufactured in Europe um, originally. But as with the expansion of most companies, the manufacturing then moves to um, an emerging market. In one case, it moved to North Africa, in Morocco. And so all the manufacturing for this product, which was being done in various ways, so there would be kind of some parts that were manufactured in China, some parts that would be manufactured here um, in, in Europe, and other parts that would be manufactured in North Africa. But when you look at the company, you think, okay, this is a European company. And so we can, you know, if it's an M&A, you know, we can look at it as a target. But when you look at all the operations and you understand that ESG is not just about one part of the operation, it's about the entire operation, you can immediately see that there might be more risks because of these emerging market uh, conditions. So we did a due diligence on it and we looked at um, the operations in Morocco, for example. We immediately found out just by looking at local press that there were major protests around the, the factory that was being used. Um, partly this protest was because there were toxic fumes that were being um, used um, and it was actually affecting the workforce and they were protesting about people getting ill and even a death. Um, we had multiple links to local politicians in that factory for licenses. We had, uh, and this is just from looking at local press, we found immediately that there were issues with laborers working, um, you know, long hours and, and weren't being compensated fairly for those things. So it's, it's almost like you're trying to, you know, not open a can of worms so you ignore that the can exists. But once you open the can of worms, you can deal with the, with the can of worms. You can deal with the problems. It's not to say that, you know, it's a deterrence. But the more you know, the more you can value it accurately and the more you know how much needs to be done post-acquisition. Yeah. I think this is really interesting that you, you say that in this case example, the information you looked at was a available in the public domain, mm -hmm. which is when it comes to, you know, integrity due diligence or corruption-related due diligence uh, and due diligence in general, I think the complaint is that it's so hard to get information. You cannot really get that. How, how do you know what the operations look like? And, and sometimes there's restricted access for various reasons. You can't, can't really get into the operations. But what, what you're saying is that when it comes to ESG due diligence, there is 
a lot you can do with without even going to the entity, but really looking at the entity from the outside perspective. I think it's important to have an independent evaluation of the entity. I think that's critical. That could be done, yes, with public domain information, but you need a specialist who can access and understand local context and local media. But I definitely would want to emphasize that even in due diligence, um, in, in, in the integrity due diligence, in the compliance field, but also in this field, it's one and the same. The value does come from spending a little bit more money and looking at human sources. Because human sources would be able to tell you immediately, oh, we know about that factory. And that's what we did. We know about the factory. We know all the workers have left. They're all protesting. So it's a small amount of money with an immediate answer, and it gives you a sense of whether there's a red flag or not. But the value of that human intelligence is that you are able to understand the context, you're able to understand the risk, and you're able to basically assess whether this is something that has a huge financial and operational effect, or whether this is something that's just once-off incident that you can deal with. So it gives you a perspective on whether this is a problem or not a problem, because that's what you're doing the assessment for in the first place. Yeah. Have you have you gotten the feeling that because my my take on this is that uh, some actually think that the legal due diligence part would tackle these kind of issues. Maybe not the environmental part. I do think there is a maturity there where, where you see that you have to have specialists looking at the potential environmental impact because there can be huge liabilities coming up from that. Let's say a factory has you know, leaked out something in the environment and you have the pollution and so on. So, so I think that's a little bit more mature. But, but in some sense... One thinks that the other aspects are more regulated by law, so wouldn't the legal due diligence sort of tap into this as well? What, what, is, what is your take on that? I like to think of lawyers as very black and white. And um, I think the difficulty with relying on legal due diligence, especially when it comes to ESG, is number one, they rely on information from the investment target. So there isn't really an independence in terms of the information, whether it's self-evaluation according to some license or certification that they have, or whether it's some sort of self-regulation, it's all based on what the investment target tells them in the legal due diligence. The second part is that it's very much based on the internal experience of the law firm. So if their law firm has very little experience in, for example, Iran, they're just going to take their hands off and say, well, from a legal point of view, A, B, and C, but they actually have not evaluated it, don't really understand the context. So I think for me, from a purely legal perspective, it could be sufficient to say, for example, the Iran situation, you know, there's an investment target that has sales in Iran. Uh, the legal advisors would say, well, you know, this hands off, we can't do anything there. But if you were to actually do a due diligence and look at it and look and understand whether the sanctioned entities were involved in it, you might be able to say, actually, we can do business there. So it's, it goes both ways, um, where legal due diligence is very black and white, is very limited in understanding whether there's a legal consequence to it. The, the due diligence, the ESD due diligence, and that's based both on public domain information and human sources, would give you a depth of understanding and would create a nuance of how far 
You can go in understanding that business and what exactly the risks might be. Legal, legal risks are not all risks. It could be illegal to do something and yet you would find a way to understand it to make it actually legal or the other way around to say that something is legal but actually you don't understand all the risks because you haven't evaluated it in a 360 way or in depth. So for example, if you are Nordic corporate looking for you know, uh, to take over a company and you have a JV with a local company in Indonesia, let's say, you know that your target has numerous valuable contracts with state-owned entities in Indonesia. The JV partner is properly registered. It's, you know, it's signed according to local laws. There wouldn't be much standing in the way of a legal due diligence. So the legal due diligence is like, okay, tick, 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 certification, licenses, registration. It tells you absolutely nothing about the entity. It doesn't tell you anything about that entity's relationship with the state-owned entities that it has contracts with. And these are where we see all these FCPA enforcements. This is where we see all of these scandals coming out, is in that space between legal due diligence, which is limited, and where you would actually really understand the holistic company and where they operate, how they operate, and what relationships they have to political entities or sponsors. And I think it's interesting you bring up uh, FCPA here because in the um, guidance that came out from the Department of Justice uh, spring 2019, they actually say that the way a company sort of takes in compliance into their M&A processes, both pre-acquisition but perhaps more importantly, post-acquisition, how do you actually remediate the issues that could potentially be there? That's a sign of the maturity mm. of the compliance program. And it, in that same guidance, they also talk about understanding the culture, which for me is an interesting take that, uh, you know, we should also understand the culture of the targets mm. that, are possibly going to be acquired. And I was wondering if you have any practical tips on how can you do a cultural due diligence on an acquisition? Mm. I mean, I'd like to say that lawyers tend to prefer dealing with black and white issues. So, you know, just to, to finish off with that idea that lawyers tend to talk about sanctions, human rights issues, environmental, suspected compliance, all of these risks as very black and white. But as soon as you look at an M&A situation, you are acquiring an entire company with its people, and that includes the culture of that people. So that, that entire company's culture comes with it. And when you look at culture, again, I would emphasize making sure that you, you're spending a lot of money buying a company. So you need to spend some money finding out how that company will fit with your company. And culture, culture clash is a thing. Um, it is definitely worth understanding it through conducting ESG due diligence or integrity due diligence on your M&A target that includes also, for example, reference calls or human source intelligence that will give you an insight not only into the management and leadership, but also into the culture of that organization. That's not something you can see in black and white. Even in an M&A situation where you're receiving uh, policies, where you're receiving documentation, where you're trying to see what structurally in black and white it, it represents, M&A is actually in the gray zone. 
and I, I find that very intriguing to, to, you know, you have this report, due diligence report on a potential target, which, you know, usually, I mean, yeah, there are risks, but a lot of risks can actually be managed or mitigated with adequate resources and, and with knowing them, as you were saying earlier, if you know the risks, you can actually manage them. It's the unknowns that become very dangerous. Mm. But I can just visualize that report also, including a cultural component. And uh, I don't know if you have any practical experience from this where, where it would sort of clash, where you see that, you know, this, this seems to be a pretty good business case on paper. Mm. But if you've been able to understand the culture with some reference calls, with getting like a more independent view on the organization, and if that seems to be fully rotten, I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you feel that the entities, managements, boards, investors that you have been working with, that they also take that component seriously? Or is it more like, okay, this is nice to know, but, you know, we're, it's not going to have a major influence on the decision? I think it depends on how much it impacts the actual business um, transactionally and also in terms of practically how they would actually involve, uh, be involved in, in, um, in looking at elements of, of, of what, you know, what are the things that, of the culture that impact the business and what are the things of the culture that are just different? Because there are different cultures. And in any kind of partnership or merging or acquisition situation, you will have to accept certain things that are different. But I think the, it, the question is whether it will impact the business or not impact the business. And if it impacts the business in terms of a rotten culture that is ethically bad, then you have a big problem. If you have a, a business culture that is just procedurally bad, then that's changeable. So it's a matter of understanding, even within the culture, the nuance of whether it's actually going to impact the business or whether it can be something that can be changed. So an ethical to change an ethical culture, I mean, that's you know at the core of what we do <laughs> in compliance is how do you even change that? And if it is embedded in the, in the policies, um, it's one thing, but if it's embedded in the people, that makes it a lot more tricky. And that needs to be from toned down the management itself. If it's a problem with management, it can be easy to fix. You change the management. But if it's within the culture and it's embedded, I think that's a trickier thing to do. It depends on whether the value of that will impact your plans for the company. Um, sometimes when you integrate people, it does change. I'm not going to be negative about that. It, there is a positive element to this. It does, it does change if we integrate people. It does change if we try and train people. It does change if we, you know, change the way that we think about things. People can change. But behavior, if not recognized and acknowledged, will remain the same. So this is really a, an interesting topic. I think we could go on forever, but we need to start to round up. I have a final question for you. Sure. And it relates to my limited budget. So I have a limited budget uh, and I am in the middle of running an M&A project and I want to use my budget for some very thorough ESG due diligence. And especially I, I want to work on the cultural component and ensure that, that we get that right as well. Should I spend my money on the pre-acquisition due diligence or the post-acquisition? I would say definitely the pre-acquisition. Because if you 
do the due diligence pre-acquisition and realize it's not a good fit, you haven't wasted money acquiring a company you're going to have to sell anyway. There Great. you go. <laughs> That's an easy, easy answer. Super. Thank you, Zakia. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Zakia, welcome to Ethics Talk. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. I'm really, really glad to have you back. Uh, I wanted to do a short talk with you today and picking your brains on a topic that I know that many ethics and compliance folks out there are struggling with and that I know you are the expert in. And that's the topic of third parties. Uh Before we do that, maybe you can just, in one or two sentences, just open up a bit your experience from this field and why I'm I'm calling you an expert. Okay. Well, um, I've been working in risk consulting for, you know, over a decade. I don't want to say decades because it might give away my age. But uh, <laughs> I love that. But it's, um, but it's definitely been a long time of me working in uh, integrity due diligence, in investigations, and risk, consult- risk consulting generally, with a focus on emerging markets, but also especially understanding from the ground how it works with third-party management, um, third-party assessments, third-party due diligence, and even third-party investigations. And really understanding and getting underneath why third parties pose such a risk for companies who are committed to business ethics and compliance. I think there are some famous statistics uh, uh, around 90% of or even higher of FCPA cases involving some form of third parties. So this is really where a company gets it wrong. However, I think it's important to bring out, out in the beginning of our, our discussion here that it's not necessarily the ter- third party per se that's the problem. Because somebody said to me that, you know, yeah, 90% of cases involves a third party, mm-hmm. but 100% of the cases involves an employee. Yes. So the third parties are obviously onboarded by an employee. They 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 are somehow, you know, there are payments to them that go out from the company. Somebody mm-hmm. puts them into the vendor master data. So there are a lot of interfaces with the company. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we should make it too easy for ourselves and say, okay, yeah, it's the third party risk. It's the third parties. It is really a company risk in how we manage our third parties. Exactly. I mean, I think at the end of the day, a third party can't act on their own. They need an employee to act with them or to collude with them. There's no way that a third party can impact on your business or your reputation without someone inside helping them along. Exactly. And that's what we're going to talk to, to about today. Uh, so I have three, um, three main topics that I, I want to dive into. First of all, It's like, who who is a third party? Who should you have a grip on? What are the categories uh, that we should look out for? Mm -hmm. Secondly, how do we know who is the risky one? Because I know companies who have tens of thousands of third parties. I mean, an immense amount of different third parties. How do you know which which one you should, you should, should have a control over? And then finally, How do you do that? How how do you manage that risk? Mm-hmm. But if we first of all start with who who are your third parties? Who who are yeah underneath this broad umbrella? 
for me, it's, it's a very simple formula. Anyone you do a financial transaction with or a monetary transaction with, anyone that is being compensated or that you are compensated from. Um, so it's really a transaction-based definition for me. If you are doing business with someone, they are a third party to you. I love that definition because I was actually challenging myself the other day uh, when I was uh, discussing with an ethics and compliance officer uh, their their third party program. And we were sort of thinking maybe should we scrap the third party approach to it and more have a transaction based approach that Mm -hmm. we should do a risk assessment on our transactions. And then, yeah, there are third parties involved, but it's more... Uh, on on to understanding that it it's not enough that you know who your supplier is if you don't know the transaction, mm. right? Yes, exactly. Because your risk is really about where the money is being flowed to and from. So where are the money flows? And that is based purely on your transaction, whether that, that money is in the form of you know, payments or the money is in the form of, you know, discounts where the money is in the form of other things. It is mostly about the transactions and following the money and following where the transactions actually converge with the relationships with internal players. So I think it's, it's, it's a very involved subject, but to reduce it down to that, it is a transactional relationship. And anyone you have a transactional relationship with is a third party and any third party poses that risk. But do you, Sakia, mean that a customer is a third party as well? Yes, completely a customer is a third party. And it's it's interesting because people often ask me when I talk about third parties, is it just sales? Is it all your sales related intermediaries? Is it all your sales related, you know, whether it's agents or distributors or consultants? Who is it that you talk about when you talk about third parties? And I like to think about it as a 360 degree thing. So if you can picture in your mind, on the one hand, you have suppliers. So you have your supply chain. These are your third parties. On the other hand, you have your sales channels, which is your intermediaries and anyone who works in that. But at the end of that sales channel is a customer that is still an external party that you are doing a monetary transaction with. So they are still a third party. And then parallel to you are, are other companies like your JV partners, like you know your M&A situation. So it's almost like a 360 view of everyone that you do transactions with. Which is huge. Right? Huge. Which is huge. And the requirement is that companies need to know who they are doing business with and how the money flows and also whether that then contributes to something that's potentially illegal. So then having this huge pool of the 360 degree of, of whoever you have some monetary transaction with, um, apart from our employees, obviously, I think mm. we, we tend to say that employees are the second party. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, how do you risk classify them? How do you, you know, embrace this and, and chunk it up so you sort of, you know, slice the elephant in a bit of a smaller, smaller pieces? I think we definitely need to take the guidance from the DOJ, from the World Bank, from all of these, you know, Uh, organizations that have provided clear guidance on how to take a risk-based approach. You have to take a risk-based approach. I mean, it doesn't make sense with limited resources, limited time 
for you to be able to actually put the money where the highest risks are, you have to be able to categorize all of these third parties into higher risk and lower risk and medium risk, however your organization does it. But it's more important that you know your organization. So for example, people have come and said, you know, okay, we take a risk-based based approach and we know that um, agents are the highest risk and therefore that's highest. And I'm like, well, okay, but are agents the highest risk for your organization? So we've had actual customers in, for example, the uh, extractive industry who've come to me and said, we don't have many agents. The highest risk for us is customers. That's actually the highest risk. So the question that you will be asked as a company if you ever got into trouble uh, by the DOJ or you know, the EU or whoever it is, is who are your risks and do you know exactly why they pose a higher risk compared to others to your company? Do you know your company is my first question. And that's what I ask my clients when we talk to them. So do you know your company A? B, then can you tell me of all of your third parties, which ones are the highest risk ones? Yes, jurisdictional risk is an issue. And there are you know, simple formulas that people use to categorize their risk and to create a risk-based approach. The one would be jurisdiction. The other one would be the size of the deal or the type of the deal. And the third one would be the type of third party. So you already have to have pre-knowledge of your company in order to create that filter to divide up the elephant. And this is, of course, a challenge in organizations where I don't think I've seen any organization that has, you know, a centralized system which all of these numerous third parties go through. So there are different people that are interfacing with customers, with suppliers, uh, with, you know, working with M&A, working on the sales side. Mm. So how do you do this then in practice when you, from a compliance perspective, you know that you have to put in place this risk-based process? And we know the parameters, as you were saying, we, we look at the type of third party, the type of the deal, the jurisdictional, you know, context, what they're going to do and so on. But how do you then implement this? Have you seen any, I see that you're laughing. <laughs> have I'm you getting excited. <laughs> yeah, have you seen some really good practical ways that you, you could share with our listeners? I mean, we've seen examples in, in various of our customers. Um, one of the ones that I thought was the best uh, involved um, a good friend of ours now who actually looked at um, understanding how different functions in the company as you can contribute to your localized knowledge and your, you know, of, of, of what it is you're doing. So for example, you can't actually have a, a multinational company where you don't know what's happening in all of the different jurisdictions that you work in. So, which is difficult. A lot of companies cannot actually tell me how many third parties they have. So if I ask them how many, they're like, we think we have you know, 30,000 or 300. I mean, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter the number, but, but the first step I think is to firstly pin down who your third parties are. So if you have local offices and you don't have a centralized system, then you need to actually go and make the effort to find out, go into your local offices or your regional offices and start creating systems within them 
to at least pin down who you are paying money to as third parties. So creating cross-functionality instead of silos where, where companies aren't able to understand even where the money is going because they're not talking to finance. You know, finance is paying out the money, but they don't know if you know, if the money, if the, if the, you know, the transaction is actually legitimate, um, if the work has been done that justifies the invoice. Um, if you have a category of third party, that's, you know, one category, are you sure that the, the category is, is correct? So if you, for example, have a risk-based approach, you think that agents are your highest risk or distributors are your risk, highest risk, or if the example I use, the customers are the highest risk. But, your agent also is your supplier. You need to understand your third parties to that depth. So I think as impractical as it seems, it actually is something where you, if you create enough understanding at the beginning, it will save you money at the end. So if you invest in understanding your third parties in the beginning and you can categorize them correctly, you'll actually save money in the end by not putting a lot of resources into lower risk uh, third parties and understanding the risks there, but actually put your resources into higher risks because now you know exactly who those high risks are. And practically, you aren't going to be spending money on everyone. You know, you are definitely going to be ticking some boxes, but we are not into the business of ticking boxes when it comes to higher risk. If you know that you have third parties in jurisdictions where there are high corruption risks, you need to make sure that those are the third parties that you prioritize. And how do we then go about looking backwards? Because I fully agree, doing it right from the beginning, creating that repository where you sort of tear in the highest risks uh, makes fully sense. But the ones that are existing, the ones that are there, how do you do it like ret retroactively? Ret retrospectively, I, I I like to talk about the backlog. Mm. How how have you seen any successful backlog projects that actually have worked? At? I feel like a lot of people get overwhelmed by the number of legacy third parties, as they term it. Um, and we've seen people who who actually ignore it, who are very you know clear that they need to kind of deal with it, but they don't they don't know how to, so they ignore it. And that never works. Um, I think it's not uh, reasonable to say if we've always done business with a third party, that means they're okay. You may have always done business with a third party, but you may never have done a due diligence on that third party. So a legacy is something you have to deal with. And I agree that these need to be parallel um, programs. So there might be a program going forward where you look at onboarding new uh, third parties, but at the same time, you need to have the commitment from your management and your executive and your shareholders to understand that the risks of continuing transactions with your legacy uh, third parties is real. And so, again, maybe my answer is a bit repetitive in terms of transaction-based. If you have an opportunity to look at what transactions are going out there, you need to make sure that you then start prioritizing the higher levels or higher frequency transactions in order to start looking at those legacy. So you're also using a risk-based approach, which is slightly different for your legacy group um, or pool of third parties. But I don't think it's okay for any company to say, well, we've been doing work with them forever, and so it's okay that we continue without doing proper due diligence at whatever level is appropriate, 
or at least understanding your risks. You know, there's this idea of known knowns and unknown knowns. At least know what your unknown knowns are or your known unknowns. Um, gets a bit confusing, but it, it. But you know what I mean. It's, yeah, you know, I I fully fully get get your point, and this is of course a topic that we could go on and and dwell on forever. And I think we will most likely come back to this. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we wrap up, uh, I, I wanted to stay on the topic of sort of the leg- legacy third parties, the existing ones, because mm-hmm. what I have experienced on several occasions is the real dilemma situations that you get get into. First of all, it may be so that you have a particular sales, you have a distributor or a dealer or maybe an agent that the sales organization has been wor- working with for ever, for decades, and, and they have a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, suddenly they get, you know, this questionnaire that they should ask these very probing and challenging questions from an individual that they have been engaging with for for a long time and there's been sort of a trust-based relationship and uh, and and I've found that it's it's can be very challenging to just send that to the sales organization and say okay you go ahead and you ask this from the agent and you send back the form so I think you have to be a bit strategic in how you do that as well and and understand that that uh, there can be these tension tension situations. So that's the one thing. How do you how how do you deal with that? Because I think we agree on that you need to do it, but how do you do it sort of in a respectful way? Mm. And secondly, what do you do when you uncover that you have a business relationship with a third party that you would not? enter into a new relationship with, you say, okay, this is definitely, maybe it's a joint venture partner, maybe it's a customer mm-hmm. that you see is a bit problematic, or maybe it's a supplier that's business critical. Uh, and so how do you deal with that, you know, weighing various types of business continuity risks, strategic risks, uh, compliance risks, reputational risks? Do you have any any practical takeaways to conclude with? I think to answer your first question about you know, the sensitivity around business and the salespeople in your organization. You have to be able to consult with your salespeople in developing the framework that you create for compliance. So one of the most successful, you know, compliance programs that I've been involved in is a huge multinational that had, you know, multiple companies that merged at some point. So had very different cultures and very separate um, and divided up uh, business um, relationships with different parts of the business. But what we were able to do is just to create buy-in and involve them from the beginning with creating the process of compliance. So they understand what the motivation is for looking at it because it's, it's, it's fun, you know, to have us create compliance structures and frameworks, but not involve business and then try and impose it on them. You have to create buy-in from the beginning. And that also means that you get a lot of insight from the front line of what exactly your risks are. Sitting in your, you know, ivory tower at headquarters doesn't help when the person on the ground is the one that actually understands what the risks might be. And when you start having very honest conversations with business people on the front line and say, look, 
these are the things we're motivated by. We want to make sure that A, B, and C is actually happening and is in order. They start opening up and actually helping and saying, actually, you're wrong. Those are not big risks for us. These are big, big risks for us. And as you get them involved and there is buy-in, you realize that more and more you start firstly not having a cookie-cutter understanding of what your risks are, but you actually have real risks that you're dealing with. So I think the, the business people dilemma, as they say, mm -hmm. is that you have to create some buy-in from the beginning and involve them in the process. They have to feel ownership of the integrity question. Is there integrity in the way that they are dealing with these relationships? The more involved they are, the more questionable um, I think that relationship should be. You need to question it. It may be trust that you have with your employee, mm -hmm. but you can't extend that trust to an external party. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's team efforts uh, really from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But what about then uh, the, the sort of weighing the different types of risks when it comes to business continuity, reputation and all of that? I think risk mitigation and monitoring is becoming more important for much more mature organizations. And there are many options for risk mitigation. You know, just because you find out something does not mean that you have to end a relationship. But to be real, if you do get into trouble, you know, the DOJ is going to ask you how many relationships have you ended? True. Yeah. So there are some where you have to pull the plug. You have to show real commitment as an organization. And that's not just toned from the top. That is everyone. And I think, you know, each organization has a personality. Um, and is your personality one that's honest and open and direct? Well, you have to find a way, firstly, to try and mitigate it. But if you cannot mitigate a risk, then you need to take the hard decision. Yeah. Which is, I think, a podcast in itself, right? How, <laughs> the hard how do decision. you make the hard decisions? <laughs> exactly. So, Ki, I think we need to round up here. It's been really great to have you here and explore explore the topic of third parties. And as I said, we're probably going to come back to this in some way or form. But thank you for, for being here. In Pleasure. Helsinki. It was great having me. Thank you so much. Thank you.